0: Good morning. Our guest preacher for today is Joe Montgomery. Joe's from here in Columbiana. He was with us. It's been quite a while. It's probably been about five years, but you may remember Joe's brother, Steve, was with us about a year ago. So thank you, Joe, for being here. Joe's a um, a member at the Gate Church in North Lima, where he uh, fills in the pulpit. He actually, two summers ago, filled in for the preacher while he was on sabbatical for an entire summer. So Uh, And Joe is a father of four kids, 13, 11, 9, and uh, three three girls, and then a son that's 24. And he is a pilot for Delta. Uh, So we're just really thankful to have you here, Joe, and welcome. Thanks, Matt. Uh, As Matt said, my name's Joe Montgomery. Um, I first met Matt about a year and a half ago, I think. We were... um, butchering chickens together at Lampost Farm. And uh, uh, Lampost Farm does uh, host these events where people can come and help with uh, processing chickens. And it's set up so that you have a chance to interact a lot, and get to know each other. You learn quite a bit about yourself, actually, and uh, and a lot about the Lord's creation and his design and creation. But I had a really good time talking to Matt about the whole process. He always has a, a unique perspective, asks really good questions, and so um, Kind of knew right away this was a guy I wanted to get to know, and so we've had a chance to hang out some more. And Matt, uh, I always appreciate your uh, perspective on on your faith and how it interacts with the, the culture and the world we find ourselves in. So thanks for that. It's um, it's a high compliment to be invited to uh, to fill the pulpit. So thank you. Uh, we're going to keep going where where you guys left off last week uh, with Mark 14. I'll be reading uh, Mark 14: 53 to 72. And this is basically the story of the trial of Jesus and the, uh, and the denial of Jesus by Peter. And so we'll read through it and then, uh, and then take a closer look at it. So Mark fourteen fifty three through 72. They took Jesus to the high priest and all of the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself with the fire chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence of Jesus, evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple, made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimonies did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asks. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed this time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This passage is, is kind of a turning point in the book of Mark. It's a, it's a pivotal moment, and up, up to this point, Jesus has been doing ministry for about three years and, and has has been healing people, teaching crowds, and he's been gaining popularity and, and sort of building momentum. But there's this underlying narrative to the Gospels about the religious leaders and the power establishment that was threatened by Jesus and and they've been plotting ways to get to him and now the book sort of takes a turn as they finally manage to arrest him and bring him to a trial and begin sort of the trajectory toward the cross but Mark lays the trial of Jesus side by side with another trial And, and Peter's trial is is less formal but both men are being questioned Jesus is being questioned by the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin and Peter is being questioned by a servant girl and a small group of people around a fire and and there are parallels here that Mark sets up and so I want to look at both of these stories we'll start with the denial uh, the, start with Peter's denial of Jesus and then come back around and look at the trial of Jesus and try to draw out and understand why Mark places these um, side by side. So first the background for, for Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter had just come from a Passover meal with Jesus where Jesus had taken the elements of the Passover meal, the bread and the wine, which had been uh, very meaningful symbols of the exodus out of Egypt. And, and for the disciples for their entire life, the bread and the wine had been, uh, been told to them that this was the, the affliction of our forefathers in the desert. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus had taken these symbols and, and sort of reimagined a meaning for them, had redefined them. And I imagine that was confusing and, and sober as he predicted sort of a, a gruesome death. Uh, but he redefined the Passover meal, and they ate the Passover meal together, and then they left. They, they left the, the meal and went out to the Mount of Olives and on to the Garden of Gethsemane, which you talked about last week. On their way, Jesus said this to them. He said, you will all fall away. In verse 27 of Mark 14, you will all fall away. And and in response to that, Peter says, not me. I mean, Peter speaks up, and in verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter says, look, they may fall away. They may lack the courage and the boldness. They may not have the depth of love that I have, Jesus, but I will not fall away. I'm with you to the end. And Peter was convinced that, and he was going all the way, even if it means death for him. And Jesus to him and says in verse 30, Truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And so they go to the garden, and we know the story. The disciples slept while Jesus prayed in agony. And eventually a crowd comes with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. And Peter, true to his word, steps up and draws his sword. Mark tells us that someone drew a sword, but John identifies that someone as Peter. Peter drew a sword and took a swing at one of the guards, cutting off his ear. And, and the only reason uh, all-out war didn't break out is because Jesus said, No, Peter, put your sword away, and he, he healed the man on the spot. But Peter is all in. He, he is, he's ready to go to war. He's ready to risk and even lose his life in the defense of his Lord. But Jesus says, No, Peter, not that way. And he gives himself up to be arrested, and they take him to the high priest's residence to be uh, tried. And and we read in verse 53 that Peter uh, 50, 54 that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And so Peter is still committed. He's still following. At maybe the risk of his life, he's identifying with Jesus and going all the way to his trial. But as he watches the trial unfold, you imagine that that he must have started to lose confidence and be confused and not understand where this is going and what his role is. Everything he thought was going to unfold is happening a totally different way. And Peter gets a question from a young girl. And so we go down to verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. And so so this interaction begins. It's just Peter and a servant girl who is probably the least threatening person in the in the area. And she comes up and she sees him and she says, you're one of them. And... You know, I mean, you could almost give Peter a pass here, right I mean, he doesn't even really say "No, I'm not," or no i I don't know that man he just he just says, "I don't know what you're talking about." He kind of just blows her off he just he just takes a small step, just a little step away and, and i mean this is this is how our hearts work, right it, fantastic big sin never starts with the big thing. it starts with a small step it starts with just a move in a certain direction, a thought or an idea or a glance in the wrong direction. But Peter takes a small step away and He kind of blows her off and he moves further from Jesus out into, uh, away from the trial. When the servant girl, verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again he denied it. So now she comes out to where he's standing, but this time she doesn't address him. She addresses a group standing there nearby. And she involves more people. And now Peter, Peter is, uh, is sort of being backed into a corner as a group of people look at him and await his response. And he says, no, he denies it. I'm not one of them. I'm not with him. And so he is, he is distancing himself more. He's going public with his denial. He is saying to the, the crowd that's there, no, I'm not with him. Then we get to the third time. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now the crowd is starting to join in. It's not an accusation from the servant girl anymore. It's it's an accusation from the whole crowd. And they look at him and they say, You are one of his disciples. We know you're one of his disciples. And in verse 71, he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. As I was preparing for this this week, I listened to a sermon by Dr. Tim Keller, and he, he kind of dives into the language of this verse, and, uh, and I learned something for the first time that, that this, this phrase, he began to call down curses, is, is really softened in our translations, and Keller goes into the, the original Greek, and the, the word there is anathematized, it's where we have an English word, anathematized, that comes directly from the Greek, and it means to curse someone or something to sort of with hatred, vehemently curse someone or something. And Keller says, look, this the verb in the Greek, it's not reflexive, which means Peter was not calling down curses on himself. He was cursing something or someone else. And what, what Tim Keller says about this is that Peter turned and he started to curse his Lord. That when Peter anathematized, he called down curses on Jesus. That... You know I've read this dozens of times and heard lots of sermons and 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 read a few books that include this section of scripture and I always thought Peter was just sort of trying to stay neutral you know just trying not to take sides in this thing I don't want to get involved I'm not really with him but when you understand what Peter did here that's he goes way beyond that He stands shoulder to shoulder with the people who are hurling insults at his Lord and he joins them. And he hurls his own insults and he says, I swear, I don't know that man. And he curses him. And at that moment, he hears the rooster crow and he remembers the words of Jesus and Mark says he broke down and wept. Matthew and Luke say he went out and wept bitterly. And I I mean... To put yourself in the place of Peter, I, I just I wonder what that moment and what the following hours and days were like as he replayed the trial over and over. He remembered the words of Jesus and he realized that all of his courage and all of the boldness he promised was a vapor. But we know that's not the end of the story. Several days later, Jesus met Peter on the Sea of Galilee. You can read about it in John chapter 21. I, for me, it is one of the most moving Stories in all of Scripture when Jesus uh, is reconciled to Peter. Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and Peter's in a fishing boat and Jesus calls out and Peter recognizes him and he dives into the water and swims to shore. And I, I mean, like his heart is so full of emotion. He just can't wait to get to Jesus. But so full of guilt and shame and, and fear and uncertainty but so full of hope. Maybe... Something will be different. And he gets to the shore, and and John tells us that nobody said anything. That, that John was there, and Peter was there, and neither of them spoke to Jesus. And Jesus didn't say anything, and, and there's this picture of just kind of silence hanging in the air. And and every time up till now, Peter has always been the one to break the silence, but not this time. This time, Peter is silent and waits. And it must have felt like an eternity until Jesus breaks the silence. And he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember, this was Peter who said, Lord, no matter what these other guys do, I'm all in. The strength of my commitment is greater than theirs. The strength of my love is higher than theirs. I won't fail you. And now Jesus looks at him and he says, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, he says yes lord you know that i love you but he doesn't say he doesn't say i love you more than these he leaves out the more than these it's almost as if peter says lord i don't know i don't know if i love you more than these i don't know if i have any courage or any boldness or any real guts to my love but i just know i love you and something has shifted in peter his his whole demeanor has changed. The foundation of his life has changed. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, feed my sheep. Like a, a, an incredible affirmation from the Lord that you, Peter, are the one to lead my church, to feed my sheep. And he they have this same conversation three times, once for each denial, and each time Jesus says, feed my sheep. Something has shifted in Peter. And I, I think I think that... The, when Peter's foundation was his own boldness, his own courage, the strength of his own love and commitment he's not in a place to lead the church. But as that foundation is stripped away, Peter now looks at the Lord and says, I don't know about any of that. I just love you. And Jesus says, then you're ready to lead my church. So what is it that changed for Peter? I mean, what was the experience of reflecting for several days as Jesus was in a tomb, and thinking through his denial, and thinking through the trial that he witnessed, watching Jesus be questioned, watching the silence, watching his profession before the high priest. And as he played that over and over in his mind, what was it about that trial that sort of tore down and remade his heart into a totally different demeanor, a totally different foundation? Well, let's look at the trial of Jesus. These were... The last things Peter saw in the life of Jesus before his resurrection. In verse 55. I would like you to look at the intentionality of Jesus and the timing and, and way in which he reveals who he is. This, there's so much we could talk about in this, uh, in this passage, and, and certainly many books and sermons have been written on this trial. I want to look at two things, his intentionality and his revelation. So verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So they're, they're trying to find evidence. They're trying to find people who can say something that will convict him, but they can't pin anything on him. And the people who testify, none of their testimonies are lining up, nothing matches. Essentially... The prosecution's case is falling apart. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with, human, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. The testimony wasn't working. And then the high priest stood up, verse 60, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He would not defend himself against their false accusation. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. You see what's happening. That The trial is not going well for the, for the high priest, for the prosecution. Nothing sticks. There's no charge that holds any water. They can't find a reason. And if Jesus just stays quiet, he's probably gonna walk out of this thing. It, it's, they, they just don't have anything to pin on him. I, um, I fly for the airlines, and, uh, and when there's an airline accident, when an airplane crashes, if there's pilot error involved, the NTSB will usually recreate the accident. And, and so what they do is they, they make a computer model of the airplane so you can see its, its pitch and its attitude and watch what the airplane is doing. And they, do, they model the entire cockpit displays so you can see all the indications that the pilots had. And they even show you what they're doing with the stick and the, the throttle, so you, the, the yoke and the throttles. But they also overlay the cockpit voice recorder. And so you hear the conversations that the, the pilots are having as they're flying the, the airplane that, that you know has already crashed. So both these men are dead. A lot more people have died. And you're watching this, this reenactment in real time of the, of the crash. And so I remember one where they, the, the pilots simply ran the airplane out of fuel. They had a nuisance light that, uh, that needed to be addressed, but it was not an emergency. And they got into a checklist and they sort of got wrapped up in dealing with this small problem and ignored the fact that they were running out of fuel. And by the time they recognized it, they were too far from the airport to make it to the airport and so as you watch this as you watch this um, this remaking of this accident unfold, it's it's a it's a really strange sensation for me because the pilots and initially they're just talking they're just two guys having a conversation about their kids soccer game or about their next trip or, or you know what they hope to do down the road or whatever just kinda of making small talk flying across the country and then they start to get distracted and they, you hear them talking about you know, the problem. And all the while, every eye in the room is fixed on the fuel panel. And every per, every pilot in the room is going, guys, look at your fuel. And you know they're not going to. You already know how this ends, but you can't help but feel like, man, if I could just get in that cockpit and help them, guys, all you need to do is see that your fuel is low and land the airplane. I sometimes have a similar experience when I read through the trial of Jesus. And i I already know how this thing ends. And yet, as I read it, I want to go, Jesus, just be quiet. Just don't say anything. You, their, their case is coming unglued. They don't have anything to pin on you. If you just be quiet, you're going to get out of this thing. Why did he speak up here? I mean, Why did he answer the high priest's question finally? And I, I think at least part of the answer is... We can see here the intentionality of Jesus. We can see when, when he's on trial here, this isn't his ministry being derailed. Things have not gone off track. It's not, it's not going sideways here. If anything, the prosecution's case is derailed, and he helps them get it back on track. He hands them the missing piece of evidence that they need. He responds in truth and says, yes, I am. And all of a the sudden, they have everything they need to send him to the cross. Folks, the, the cross was never plan B. It wasn't, it wasn't something gone sideways. From the start, Jesus knows and Jesus proclaimed at the Passover meal that this night ends at a cross, and that's where I'm headed. And I imagine, as Peter reflected on this moment, that he began to understand it was Christ who arranged this. It was Christ who made sure that this thing ended at Calvary. But look how he does it. Look at the revelation of Jesus in Mark 14, verse 61. The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? In verse 62, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So for For a Jewish man to to claim to be the Messiah would certainly be controversial, but it's not blasphemy. Uh, I I learned this as I looked through some commentaries. The the Jewish people did not expect a divine Messiah. They did not expect the Messiah to be God in the flesh. They expected him to be sort of the son of God in the sense of being um, a chosen, special uh, ambassador of God, much like King David was called the son of God. But for Jesus to say, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory, went way beyond claiming to be the Messiah. And the commentary I read said that Jesus here is unambiguously equating himself with the fully divine and exalted figure in Daniel chapter 7. In other words, at this point, the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he essentially says, I am the Messiah, and the divine Son of God. And what's, what's so strange to me, I, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things to dive into here, but what's so strange to me is Jesus has been so secretive about who he is up to this point. I mean, if you read through Mark, or you read through any of the Gospels, it's, it's almost frustrating how frequently Jesus goes out of his way to, to veil his identity. Demons come up to him and say, "I know who you are, you're the Son of God, and Jesus says, Be quiet and he he shuts them down when on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James and John see Jesus uh, um, exalted he he starts to shine brilliantly and and he interacts with Moses and Elijah, and there's a voice from God and I mean it's it's undeniable that there is something incredibly supernatural about Jesus and he tells them don't tell anyone about this until after I'm resurrected like, keep this quiet you go why why is Jesus so, so secretive about his identity all the way through the gospels now here on trial he stands up and he says I am the Messiah and the divine son of God one of the, um, one of the commentaries I read Matt sent to me uh, a couple weeks ago and it was a, it's a paragraph out of uh, a commentary by James Edwards. And this is what he says. He says, Only in the light of suffering can Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son. At the trial, the veil is finally removed. He says, Only, only in the light of suffering is it, is it right for Jesus to divulge his identity as God's son. He goes on, the malevolence which the Jewish authorities have harbored since the beginning of Jesus' ministry is finally exposed. Hence the secret that Jesus has protected since the beginning of his ministry can now be disclosed. And here's what I think is going on. There's this, there's this section the, uh, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, toward the end of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is describing the meaning of the cross. And he says, he says in that passage, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but he, Paul says, what Jews desire is a sign, and what Gentiles desire is, is wisdom. But that the cross, the cross is neither power to the world nor wisdom to the world. The cross looks like weakness and foolishness. And, and Paul's explaining what the Jews want is they want a miraculous demonstration of the power of God. They want... Elijah on Mount Carmel, they want real flames and fireworks, they want miraculous healing, they want, a, they want proof, this is the divine Son of God. And what the Gentiles want, they want philosophy, they want understanding, they want wisdom that penetrates to the heart of reality, that they can understand with, with their mind who God is. And, I, and I, as I reflect on that, I mean, Jesus had both. Like he could have stood in front of the crowd and he could have created a spectacular demonstration of the power of God that would, that would absolutely transfix everyone there and then stand and say, behold, I am the Messiah and the divine Son of God and everyone would agree. Or he could have presented a sermon, uh, uh, an understanding of reality. He could have brought a depth of knowledge and wisdom that would have blown away everyone who hears him and then stand in the midst of a crowd transfixed by him and say, Behold, I am the divine Son of God. But instead, Jesus goes to a trial where he is beaten and spit upon and mocked and he's about to be crucified. This is the place where he says, Behold, I am the divine Son of God. This is the moment of his choosing. This is what will be identified with him. And as I I contemplate that, I feel like I'm peering into something I cannot ever fully understand, but I want to know more. I can speculate that as Peter peered into that, as Peter thought about that moment in that trial over and over, the Lord he had betrayed who stood in the midst of suffering and weakness and declared who he was, Peter was changed. Because, folks, the heart of our faith, the centerpiece of our faith is the cross. When when, when Paul talks about the cross, he says says the cross is powerlessness to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks, but to those of us who are being saved, the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Paul says not we preach Christ. He says we preach Christ crucified. It is our crucified Lord who orients us. It is our crucified Lord. This is where we go with the power of God and the wisdom of God. For as Paul says, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Peter looked at the cross and he understood, he began to understand at least. This is his foundation. This is what has been the goal and what is what is his hope, his salvation, and his life. And as we approach Easter, we have as a church the opportunity to celebrate the cross and to center our hearts on the cross of Christ, not just on Jesus, but on Christ crucified. So let's take the Easter season and let's take this opportunity to make him and his death and resurrection the centerpiece of our heart. the the hymn says rock of ages cleft from me let me hide myself in me nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I claim let me pray Lord we thank you how do we say thank you Um, so often I identify with Peter I feel my heart move away from you and I just accept the moves away I feel denial and yet I also identify with Peter in the boat there is within me and within us this love this hope this desire for you that if there's a way we want to be right with you we want to be near you and Lord you've made a way so I pray that as, uh, as we celebrate Easter this year as we look forward to the celebration of of what you've done your salvation that the cross would would just boom large in our view in our hearts and our minds that we would we would contemplate what it means that you stood in the midst of a trial and declared who you are and i pray that like peter we would dive out of the boat and run to you we would be near you at all costs and trust that you've made the way and that our foundation will be built on what you've done.